I'm Brianne Bennis, and this is No End in Sight, a podcast about life with chronic illness. Hey, this is associate producer Drew Marr. Before we get started, here's a quick reminder that you can find No End in Sight on Patreon, which is a really simple way for listeners to subscribe to support the show financially on a monthly basis. So if you've been enjoying the podcast and you also have a couple bucks to spare, we'd be so, so grateful if you'd sign up as a patron at patreon.com slash noendinsight. Today we'll be talking with Crystal Vasquez about hypermobility, mast cells, and CSF leaks. A couple of content notes for this episode. There's a mention of food tracking around 32 minutes in, and COVID is mentioned a couple of times throughout the episode with a discussion surrounding infection risk at the 45-minute mark. Before we start, here's our disclaimer. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Make sure you talk to your practitioner about any questions or symptoms. So, I like to start just by asking people, how was your health as a kid? So I always thought that I was like a super healthy child. Yeah. And all doctors were always like, oh, she's so healthy. And like, <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. It wasn't necessarily fine. Mm. <laughs> it wasn't necessarily like anything that bothered me on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. But like having like lots of headaches as a teenager, my knees always hurt with weather changes. Yeah. And my mom usually pushed it off. It's like, oh, that happens to everyone. And I'm yeah. like, does it though? <laughs> yeah, really? But like, perhaps that happened to your mom. Right. Like it was probably normal for her. Yeah. But it wasn't normal for like the general public. Right. I also had a lot of like weird pre-syncope spells, mm-hmm. which they usually say like you get as a teenage girl for some reason, but it didn't really go away. It's gotten to the point where I, so I never actually faint, but I can, when my vision blacks out, I can still like migrate to my next destination pretty yeah. well. Yeah. And I feel like that's a skill. <laughs> yeah. There's like a level of stasis that you can find where you're like okay well my eyes aren't working anymore but my legs are still like my arms and legs are still responding so if I could just get myself to the safe location I don't need to see for the next but it's like you're right it is a little bit of a gamble (laughs) yeah but like I thought that was normal like people just do that and I'm like oh it's not also, like sitting in the shower isn't a normal thing. I've sat as a sat in the shower, like the floor of the shower, since like I was little. Like yeah. showers are exhausting if I don't sit. <laughs> right. Yeah. And they are. But like as a kid, especially stuff like bathing, I think, where like you probably only know your immediate family's habits and like maybe somehow a couple other close friends or something. We're not all talking about our shower postures every day, like at public school or something. You just wouldn't even know. Yeah, I'm just like, why wouldn't people sit in the shower? It's so much more comfortable and easy. Don't they get dizzy? Like, yeah. Don't they get tired? Like, isn't the water, like, too hot for them? Yeah, those things. Yeah, yeah. So you had, like, what we would maybe say, like, idiosyncrasies that at the time you didn't know were perhaps unusual or meaningful, sounds like. Right. And I also sit really weird so you can't see it now but I'm like in a ball <laughs> yeah, me too I'm like this is my knee right here at the bottom of the yeah <laughs> yeah so I've always sat really oddly I guess which I don't know people just thought oh crystal's just weird it's fine but I'm learning that that's probably to help my hips feel comfortable and to help my body stay upright <laughs> yeah yeah I've been learning so much about that the last few weeks even And it's like, Mm -hmm. oh, people who may or may not be hypermobile, like our postures are really going to be correcting differently. And like some of these habits might anecdotally turn out to be really big patterns in people with this body stuff. Tell me if you relate to this or not. But I feel like being a fidgety sitter when you're younger, people just think that you're annoying. They're like, why can't you just sit still? And it's never like, oh, I want to annoy everybody by moving my feet a lot to keep circulation. I'm just uncomfortable. Like I wrap my legs around like chair legs. Yeah. I've crossed my legs like two times sitting yeah. cross-legged or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I noticed yesterday that I was like jiggling my calf a lot, just like tensing and untensing. And I think my husband asked me about it. And I was like, oh, I do that all the time. I've just never, if someone had asked me and I wasn't doing it, I would have not, never thought that I did that. But he was like, what are you doing right now? Is that on purpose? It's like, oh yeah, I think I do that all the time. And now I'm like, and I bet it's for circulation. I just didn't ever realize that it made me feel better. Whew. Right. 
my hips are probably one of the most hypermobile parts of my body for whatever reason. And I've definitely noticed that that's the area that hurts if I'm sitting like properly. Yeah. So I'm just like, oh, bodies are weird. Yeah. Yeah. And chairs are weird. Okay. Chairs are weird. <laughs> but so as a kid, these are all of the kind of signs that are starting to pile up. And was there a point when you were younger when anything started to look suspicious or kind of change? Or did that trend last through school? It, kind of? it lasted for a while. The first major thing that had ever happened to me was in college. I was training for a 5K. And so running on the street in cement. Yeah. And suddenly I got this really like painful feeling in my pelvis Mm -hmm. and so I went to the doctor and they were just like oh your hips misaligned oh and I'm like how did that happen they're like I don't know it's misaligned we'll realign it and I'm like is this a normal thing that happens yeah on the same appointment I also asked about my knees because they're the ones who always hurt and they're like oh that happens sometimes and I'm like to like a 20 what was I like 21 at the time right you're like <laughs> okay but do all of these things happen to the same 21 year olds very often right and yeah. like I never really ran again after that because like it would come back a little mm-hmm. bit not as bad as the first time right. and I'm just like well I guess running isn't for me yeah I just have a funny hip <laughs> yeah it was really confusing <laughs> yeah Yeah, it's so weird once you start to, like, put pieces together and you're like, oh, that doctor just didn't know. Like, the questions that I was asking were the right questions. Looking back, I think my doctor actually was quite confused, but they just didn't admit it. Right. (laughs) But I also wasn't, like, I didn't know how to press them, like, properly, so I just let it go. Yeah. It also feels like, I think, what are they going to do? Like, you have an injury and the injury will, like, they're treating it or they're not treating it, but they're... The underlying thing, there's nothing to know yet. Not that that's really a defense. It's terrible. Right. Okay. So you had a running injury while you were in college and you stopped running, but you were like, okay, well, that's a weird thing, I guess. And then more or less go back to normal, but without running? Mostly. Mm -hmm. Like I just always deal with headaches. That's a thing that has always happened to me. But for the most part, my health went back to baseline. Mm -hmm until grad school which is when all the stress and whatever made my body into a disaster and all of the eds and all of its friends came and was like hi nice to meet you yeah there was like a perfect storm it's interesting knowing about eds a little bit how people are like it's weird that chronic illnesses some like so often have a stressful onset is it the stress and it's like well kind of but also like the kindling was already there like didn't come from nowhere okay so what were you aware of first like symptom wise or yeah like when that was starting there was a huge change to my mental health first that was Mm -hmm. the first thing that came and I went to see a therapist who this plays a role later but coincidentally also has EDS Hmm. it was amazing so I had this whole like depression anxiety and I was talking to her And at some point during grad school, I offhandedly mentioned to her like, oh, I was walking from my train stop to school, which is like a mile. And for some reason I felt compelled to sit down halfway. Like I just didn't have the energy to continue going. I must be really depressed or something. Yes, that's like what I was like exactly. Like why can't my brain keep up with anything? And she's like, oh, that's interesting. You should go see a medical doctor. And make sure, like, your hormones are fine, your thyroid is fine, like, you don't have, like, an autoimmune disease. Yeah. And so that kind of started my medical journey of going to doctors and them being like, you're probably depressed, you should see a psychiatrist. And I'm like, I don't really want to. Also, because mm-hmm. I had a lot of weird reactions to medications when I was going to a psychiatrist, which I guess is normal for people with EDS and such. Yeah, but at the time, you were like, I have bad luck with medication, right? So you had had some mysterious need to sit down while you were walking and you mentioned it to your therapist who incidentally is chronically ill and your therapist suggested that that was maybe not a problem for therapy, basically. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And also you now realize you're like, also this mental health history and mental health medications I've always had trouble with. So then did things start to kind of pile up slowly or did things go quickly it started slow so Mm -hmm. it's then started with like aches and pains when i woke up like my legs and arms were just super tired all the time and like there was this like overwhelming fatigue and that happened maybe through one summer and then towards the fall 
when I started revamping my schedule a little bit more, I started having nerve pain. Mm. So nerve pain on my arms. And then I was like, oh, this is really not good. Yeah, it's like so more, it's electric. It's like a whole other thing than fatigue where you're like, well, am I tired? I feel like you never wonder if you're having nerve pain or or not. Right. If I'm tired, I'm like, oh, I'm just stressed or, oh, I'm just depressed or, oh, I'm just anxious. But nerve pain, I'm like, oh, crap. Is there something wrong with my brain, my nervous system? Yeah. This feels serious. Yeah. What happened one time is at school, I was working and I just felt really out of breath and I felt really tired. And I was like, I'm kind of scared. I'm going to go to my health center at at the university. Mm -hmm. And then they were like, I don't know. Let's send you to a rheumatologist. Why not? (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, there's nothing wrong with you. Your temperature is fine. Like you don't seem sick, I guess. (laughs) The two things that we know to check for. Yeah. And then I think this was the same visit or maybe a follow-up visit was like, I think you have fibromyalgia. We're going to send you to a rheumatologist. The doctor at my school sent me just this packet of like, this is what fibromyalgia is and handed it to me. And I kind of was sitting there and I'm like, you just kind of told me I had this chronic thing that can't be cured. Like, (laughs) perhaps a little bit more conversation is necessary. Right. And then they're like, there's nothing else I can do to you. And then the specialist was like, yeah, you probably have fibromyalgia. (laughs) So I have this really bad history of rheumatologists. Mm -hmm. Like I cannot stand them right now. (laughs) The first one was like, oh yeah, well, most of my fibromyalgia patients feel like they want to die, which was confirming, but also kind of messed up to say yeah when you first meet someone yeah like there are so many ways to try and be like just so you know you're not alone in experiencing this as difficult there are much gentler ways and different things to say that are not that because that is jarring she was also not really fond of medicine for some reason like taking medication Mm. so i think i just had a couple muscle relaxers which i also react really badly to for some reason right my my history continues but eventually she left the practice and i got switched to another one but at this point i'm kind of like fibro doesn't seem like the whole picture i also have this really weird relationship with fibromyalgia because just throughout my diagnosis history, it's been one of those things where like, it's just fibro, like there's nothing else wrong. And I'm yeah. like, there's obviously something else wrong. Yeah. So even if fibro is something that I have, which I still don't know, I'm kind of like, <laughs> yeah, I don't want to touch it. <laughs> yeah, that's so valid. It's such a complicated thing that like, fibro is a symptom cluster, really. And there is research into causes of that symptom cluster, like it is a real experience and a real diagnosis, but it's not a diagnosis with a known underlying cause or even really a single unifying theory. It's like probably a whole bunch of people with different underlying causes and the same symptom cluster, but a lot of doctors don't treat it that way for some reason. They like either are just like fibro's fake and that means that you're not sick at all, or they're like everything you have is caused by fibro. It's like, well, nothing's caused by fibro it's descriptive it's not anything like this whole linguistic mess it's become a lot clearer to me the more i've talked to people and the more that i hear people especially with fibro who turn out to have an underlying condition which is like right again doesn't mean that fibro is not real it means that fibro is secondary to the underlying condition and not everyone with the underlying condition have fibro as a result Okay, that's like all of the disclaimers for everybody listening about diagnostic validity. It's complicated and understandable. It gets even like more messed up when all of your blood tests come back negative. Mm -hmm. Well, at least within the range. And I've learned recently that the range is kind of crap. Like (laughs) even if you're within the range, but you're like on either end, it could still mess up your whole system. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I went from rheumatologist to rheumatologist to try and figure out what was wrong. And they're all like, fibro. There was this one rheumatologist that I went to who was supposed to be really, really good. And they were off of my insurance. So this was out of network. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> it was probably the worst experience in my life. Oh no. <laughs> Cause I like met with her and I had mentioned the EDS. Cause at that point I was like, oh, I think that this might actually be a thing mm-hmm. that I might have. She was like, well, even if it is EDS, there's no cure. You just have to go to PT or something. Or like they just have to like learn how to like position themselves properly. Something really like offhanded remark about that. Yeah. She also I followed up on an email and she was like, You're not hypermobile. And I'm like, You didn't 
like test you didn't do the what's it called the baton score she didn't do any of that to me and i was like you don't actually know and it's on my chart from my other doctor like <laughs> yeah like you're just not even this isn't about me it feels like you're not looking at my info also the fact that she said that eds can't even be cured but like she was still like it's probably fibromyalgia and i was like that also can't be cured <laughs> right. excuse me yeah like what is your enthusiasm here and with eds I've probably said this like a million times in this round of podcast episodes that are going to come out, but it's so frustrating because yes, it's true that there's no targeted treatment or medication, but like one, it is absolutely true that learning about your body mechanics can make a big difference for a lot of people. And two, it informs all of your other care. Like it should inform cardiology. It should inform, I mean, literally everything. So it's so ridiculous for doctors to be like, you don't need to know if this applies to your body or not. Right. So there's a rant. <laughs> yeah. I think long story short, like I ended up finding this primary care physician who I think his daughter has EDS. So he's really familiar and he handles a lot of EDS patients in the area. Mm -hmm. And I finally got my diagnosis, hypermobile EDS. Surprise. You said you had mentioned it to your previous doctor. So by then you were like looking for care for EDS to be evaluated for it specifically, right? You weren't like, yeah. what could I have out of anything? You were like, who can actually help me with this thing that seems to be at least part of what's going on? Yeah, I think a few people had mentioned it was a possibility to me. A few people who at least know of medical things. Yeah. And I was like, well, I do kind of pass this like weird arbitrary bait and score yeah. thing and I also have all these other symptoms that I guess kind of match and then I got that diagnosis and then with it I don't actually have an official diagnosis for dysautonomia or POTS mm -hmm. but it is like a thing that I know I have right I mean other kinds of dysautonomia are more complicated but POTS like when you check at home you're basically getting the same information as when the doctor checks and that doesn't mean that a doctor isn't valuable for managing it but it just means like it's not a lot in question. Your autonomic nervous yeah. system is dysregulated, as you can tell. <laughs> yeah, I know early on when I first learned about dysautonomia, I brought it up with an older primary care person. And they were like, oh, do you have like a Fitbit or something? Like, do you check this? And I'm like, why are you? <laughs> Isn't this your job? <laughs> yeah. Excuse me. Can you check it? Like, how do you know if I can afford a Fitbit? <laughs> I think about that all the time, too, which is that, like, Fitbits and other... I know some people who are very deep into tracking tools, like Garmin has a fancy watch. There's, like, a bunch of them. And they're so helpful for dysautonomia, but they're, none of them are considered medical right now, and they absolutely should be. You should get a Fitbit as soon as someone thinks that you might have dysautonomia, and you should get to keep it. Like, they are medically right. necessary tools, but they're not priced or acquired that way right now. Mm -hmm. That's, like everything that doctors think about what might be helpful. Have you tried this expensive intervention that I think you might like if you can afford it? <laughs> yeah, it's a mess. I'm really privileged. I can afford a Fitbit and I can afford a lot of tests and I have reasonably good insurance since mm -hmm. I'm still a grad student. As soon as you're in a community, like you know where the barriers are with other people too. It's not like, right. oh cool, I ended up being okay. So now it doesn't matter that it's a problem. <laughs> Okay, so you were diagnosed with EDS and you live with dysautonomia and POTS, although you have not had a tilt table test, which is plenty of people are diagnosed that way also, like without one. So it's kind of arbitrary. Yeah, yeah. When I did go to a cardiologist, they were kind of like questioning my EDS diagnosis. Yeah. And they're like, you should get genetic testing. I was like, if it's hypermobile EDS, that doesn't really matter. So, yeah. but. I don't know, that ended up falling through. I also ended up figuring out that CSF leaks were really related to EDS. <laughs> yeah, so you were like, I have EDS, so now I must learn all about it, probably, as a grad student. And you recognize POTS right away, or like, kind of pretty soon. How did you start to uncover the other comorbidities or complications? Were you like, paying more attention and you could feel it? Yeah, so... The CSF leak in particular was like the weird one that I had no idea about. I took a medical leave for maybe five months, maybe like a year ago. Mm -hmm. And during the medical leave, I was basically horizontal the whole time. Yeah. And I was just attributing it to like, oh, I'm in pain and everything sucks. So I'm just going to lay down. Yeah. When I went back to work, which coincidentally happened at the same time the pandemic hit. Yeah. <laughs> so at least I was at home. But I noticed that I couldn't sit at my desk for very long without getting like this whole like shoulder pain and like um, a headache and a migraine eventually. Mm -hmm. 
And I was like, oh, this is weird. What does EDS have that could cause this? Yeah. Which again, this is one of the reasons that it's so important. It's fine that there's no magic drug. Being able to Google that is already so helpful or wherever you do your searching. Right, yeah. And so first was like instability, any cervical spinal instability. But like all my MRIs and imaging are always normal, like frustratingly normal. <laughs> You're like, I would love to have a healthy neck, but if I have the symptoms of an unhealthy neck, it's not very comforting. Same as any other test. Right. I think also my therapist coincidentally also had a CSF leak mm -hmm. in her lifetime at some point. Yeah. And so she was basically like, well, it could be like this, this, or a CSF leak. And I was like, oh, what's that? Let me Google it. Yeah. <laughs> I ended up finding a specialist. I think that was recommended to me. My imaging was still pretty normal. So they were like, it's probably nothing. But if you want to, you could wear this abdominal binder for like a couple months and see if your leak symptoms get better. Because if they do, then that means that you probably have a leak because you're raising your spinal pressure by having this constriction. Okay, is it like around a chunk of your torso, kind of? Yeah, it's basically around most of your torso. I think people also wear them after like abdominal surgery to like kind of keep everything together. Yeah. But it also happens to raise fluid pressure. I don't know terminology. Yeah, and I will say like, I don't know as much about CSF leaks because they're like too close to the kind of thing I get squeaked out about. But so cerebrospinal fluid, which is like what it sounds like, brain and spine goo. And yeah. if your connective tissue isn't optimal, it's possible that the lining of your whole situation that keeps that goo inside can be punctured or kind of, I'm like rubbing my hands together as if people can hear me and know what that means. <laughs> yeah. And so obviously if it's not sealed, then the pressure will go down. And if you're vertical, your brain is going to feel that first. This is just for people listening, the really technical explanation. So that's what the CSF leak is basically. And so now what you're describing would be, it's like, obviously you can't put pressure on your brain. I look ridiculous, but people can't see me. I'm like thinking about the words <laughs> for head. But you can put pressure on your back by putting pressure on your whole body, I think. Right. I know that I didn't explain it any better than what you've said, but this is like context for people who aren't used to this corner of the world. Right. I'm also going to adopt spinal goo into my vocabulary. It's a great phrase. <laughs> yeah. All of my words are just, how can I talk about this not anatomically to trick my nervous system into not <laughs> thinking that I'm talking about nervous systems because it makes me faint. <laughs> Yes, please tell me if I'm getting too, like, detailed. <laughs> yeah, no, and you're fine right now. I Because it comes up a lot, like, in these conversations. And so sometimes I do start being like, I'm going to listen slightly less to some of these words. And if that happens, that's why. But so far, so good. Okay, cool. But yeah, so I put the abdominal binder on. As a side note, like, I absolutely hated the binder. <laughs> For some reason, it, like, makes me feel really, like, depressed and, like, ugly and gross. Mm. Like, I don't know. It's, like, this weird psychological thing where, yeah. like... Like a type of dysphoria, but yeah, because yeah. dysphoria, obviously there's gender dysphoria, but there's other experiences like weird body, yeah. not the way it wants to be thing. Yes. Weird chronic illness related dysphoria, but I can't really put into words what exists in my brain. Yeah, that's valid. <laughs> and then I ended up talking to the nurse. So the nurse was really great. The specialist himself was kind of like, your imaging is normal. So whatever. Yeah. So why are you here? Yeah, the nurse followed up and the nurse was really great. And she was the one who suggested the abdominal binder. And after like, I think a few months of trying it, I was like, I got better and I've had like almost no migraines and very few headaches. And were you able to be upright more often? You were kind of doing more of your normal activities with it on? Yeah, for most of the workday I could. Nighttime always got worse because you're upright for so long. Like right. not even the binder could help you at that point. You noticed a difference, but it was not the same as not having the problem. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so then they, they can patch it up and I eventually got that procedure. I had to have it twice because the first one didn't take. Oh no. Apparently that's normal. I would assume that it's more normal for people with Right. Where you're connected with you. The injury is more normal for this population, and also poor wound healing is normal for this population. Yeah. Yeah, right. The first time I got up from bed, I guess a little too fast, and I was like, oh, that doesn't feel right. And then, like, all the symptoms came back, like, yeah. almost immediately. Oh, no. You must have been so frustrated. 
<laughs> it was so frustrating. And then I had to wait another like month and a half or something. Mm -hmm. And then with the pandemic, obviously things are slow and hard to like schedule. And then like my partner couldn't come with me either yeah. time. Right. And I hate doctors. <laughs> right. Understandably. Yeah. And so the most recent one, obviously you said they were both during the pandemic, but the second one then was relatively recently to when we're recording, right? Yeah, I think it was an end of October, maybe. Mm -hmm. But that one took, and so right now I'm sitting up yes. like a like a human. Yes. <laughs> it's so exciting to be able to sit up sometimes. I told my primary care that when I saw him a few weeks ago, and he was like, it's amazing the things that you get excited about. And I was like, I know, right? Yeah, you're like, you don't understand what it's like yeah. to have your brain be like, vertical is not happening. Yeah, I think... I mean, EDS sucks in general and all of the stuff that comes with it. But I think the CSF leak was definitely the most disabling yeah. symptom that I've had so far. Yeah. And then, of course, because I've been horizontal for months, my neck is now a mess and it hurts. But at least yeah. it doesn't hurt because of the CSF leak. So I can, like, I have pillows that I conveniently place around my body. Yeah. Yeah. And then I'll get PT probably next year. And that should help more. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. You probably see me talk about this, but I just started PT this year in October, I think. So I'm like a month and a half in or something and I can't do it every day. Like I'm trying to be so gentle about it, but I already on the days when I do it, I can really tell that my body is like aligned better and so much happier. And then I kind of get mad that it's like, why didn't I start this 20 years ago? I didn't, why wasn't anybody looking for this? Blah, blah, blah. But let it go pt is really helping for me right my first round of pt which is before all this leak stuff happened yeah like i was like why does my body feel so much better with these random stretches that i've been told to do like it makes no sense yeah all of my exercises are very gentle and she's given me some ways to make them a little bit more like more resistance or more difficult but they're still all lying on the ground i have like three sitting up exercises and one standing stretch but I got to be like, hey, can you give me some modifications for if I'm lying on my back all day? She was like, yes, here's your lying on your back all day workout. Like, Regular care does not stand up to this to people who understand hypermobility. Okay, so that was in October. And then it sounds like this year must be really hard to kind of untangle if you were like adjusting to the pandemic. You had come back from medical leave, I guess a while ago now, but like all of these things are kind of stacking on top of each other. Yeah, I came back from medical leave April. I found out about the leak early summer. Mm -hmm. I think my first patch was July. My second one was October. I also was like, I think a few weeks ago, put on antihistamines. Yeah. So both H1 and H2 yeah. receptor blockers. I don't know. I haven't really looked up the terminology that much. Yeah. And that has been amazing also. <laughs> yeah. I started just taking them at all with like, safe over-the-counter doses back in April, I want to say, because I had mm -hmm. been, I had a big crash in April. I, I don't really know what happened. But anyway, I was like, I feel terrible and I'm sleeping terrible and I need to do something. And I know people are talking about this. And it was like, it didn't make me not crashed, but it made my sleep so much better. And I was like, I need to learn more about this later because I'm sure it's not, doesn't work for everybody. Not everyone has the same underlying patterns, but like, it's, too much of a coincidence to ignore that a lot of people with connective tissue problems also have mast cell activation problems and also their sleep is impacted. No, your tweet from a few hours ago, I was like, oh my gosh, since I've taken it a few days after, I've been sleeping so much better. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, it made a big difference for me. And then I like just this week after starting there in April this week, I've been really dysregulated again. And I was like, I need to like do some of the research to find out what the actual sleep histamine thing is. And I had decided to do that. And then I got to interview Alex for a podcast episode. So probably it'll be like right before or right after this one, hard to say, but it'll be in this batch. So there's an episode and it's three hours. And Alex shared a lot of the research that they'd done into this stuff because they had been diagnosed with narcolepsy and like went really deep into sleep architecture and like histamine cycles and all of this stuff. And I was like, I have to do much less research now that I've been lucky enough to listen to this. So great. So I'm excited to listen to it when it comes out because I need to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm really excited to share that. What I really would love is for us to be able to see doctors and allergists who know about this cross-system problem, but that's not the world that we're living in right now. <laughs> right. At some point, I, I see a, a neurologist 
who's also kind of a sleep specialist and basically they're just like you have idiopathic hypersomnia you're always tired but we don't know why yeah and i'm like that's not helpful but okay now i kind of know why <laughs> right and it's like so hard when you're like okay well what's dysautonomia and then what's just like my body hurts because it's taking so much abuse and then what's maybe a mast cell reaction or like some other kind of immune problem it's tough I think dysautonomia is interesting because it can be caused by so many things. So I'm like, what's yeah. the POTS? What is the mast cell? What is the CSF leak? Because yeah. that definitely improved my dysautonomia when that was fixed. So. Oh, yeah, I bet. And it's so hard to untangle. Okay, so since the running incident, which is when you became kind of more aware that like something interesting was going on, did you go down any weird unrelated research holes or like weird experiments that weren't typical or kind of any of that other stuff during that time while you've been also investigating and also a full-time student so after the writing incident i well because everyone always told me oh you're so healthy like it's yeah. amazing how healthy you are so i didn't really think it was anything major right or that it would mean like that it meant something i've gone down rabbit holes of autoimmune issues because I have all this inflammation that I've been trying to track, hence all the rheumatologists. I think it ended up being mast cell because it's definitely gone down a bit since I've started taking the antihistamines. But yes, I've looked at a lot of autoimmune stuff. So I'm quite educated about that now for some reason. <laughs> That's how I feel too. It was like I was in this middle stage for so long where it was like something's going on. What do I need to learn about so that I can get test, like ask the right questions or whatever? But it was not like any of those things. Yeah. Yeah. And then, especially as you're starting to look at mast cell, have you thought much or looked much into environmental triggers and diet triggers? Like, is that something that you've had to think about? Or has it been not a priority because it just hasn't been the biggest fire? It hasn't been the biggest fire. I also have this issue with tracking food for just reasons that food's such a big part of my life and yeah. like my social life that yeah. like, Anything that would make me think that I can't eat a certain thing yeah. just throws me into this spiral of like anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. And then environmental triggers, I haven't really tracked that much, mostly because it's just too much work. Yeah. <laughs> it's too much brain power. I feel like it's the kind of thing where like, the the position that you were in before you knew that you had a CSF leak, it appears to me anecdotally that it's like, if you're that sick and you don't find the information, so it's like, if the binder hadn't helped, I guess, and then you were like, okay, well, back to the drawing board. I feel like that's when, definitely for me and other people have to be like, okay, do I really have to do this work of like thinking about all of these other things? Like, it's so much. And if it's not the main problem, it's like an expensive time waste God. right i just want healthcare to know more about us already that's is that too much to ask same yeah so you're putting out fires so you yeah. so you put out the main fire but then when you put out that fire a bunch of other fires appear because your body's like i can focus on these other things now yeah we have enough awareness for you to notice this thing that was probably already going on but you didn't feel it or whatever right <sighs> yeah sometimes it feels like it never ends so since diagnosis, how has school been? Up until that point, you probably were just like, I'm a student, nothing to think about here. So school, just school and yeah. research was not the worst. I was pretty lucky that my advisor and my lab were pretty supportive. Mm -hmm. And so like, it's, I mean, it took a long time for me to use mobility aids around them, but like I eventually got there and it yeah. was fine. And now I'm just the girl with the cane. <laughs> Yeah. My lab is not accessible, though, which is quite frustrating. And mm -hmm. I, I wrote a whole article about lab accessibility like a few weeks ago. What has been an issue or what was an issue was I also do field work on occasion. Mm -hmm. And field work for me in my lab is you either go to the middle of a forest somewhere on top of a giant tower and put an instrument up there and you climb up and down. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> That's one. Or you got out a old plane from the 60s that is now owned by NASA and you put a bunch of instruments and a bunch of scientists fly around into I think the last one was fire plumes or something like smoke plumes okay the second one so the, the plane one I almost couldn't go mm -hmm. because you had to fill out a medical questionnaire and the doctor denied me participation access mm. 
it wasn't like a, okay, let me talk to you as a doctor and see what your needs are. And, right. you know, it was just like, no, it was outright like discrimination. Like you're not yeah. allowed because you have some kind of thing wrong with you. Yeah. And like probably something that the doctor didn't really understand. Like you have a scary looking thing. Yeah. I think I mentioned my medication, which at the time was an SSRI that also worked for fibro. Mm-hmm. I think I mentioned that I can't lift more than 40 pounds because mm-hmm. I would hurt myself. And I mentioned that I use a mobility aid on occasion, not even all the time, just sometimes. Mm-hmm. And they're like, you're a danger to the whole mission. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, okay. And I'm like, am I though? Yeah. Like nothing changed. Like I can still, like, I don't need to do any of the, like, I don't need to walk. I don't need to carry things. I have teammates who can do that. And they yeah. know my, uh, my needs. We ended up fighting it my school and I mm-hmm. but it was this whole thing where like I had to jump through so many hoops yeah at one point they were mad that I was taking medication even though they didn't bring that up the first time yeah I don't know I think we eventually won I probably called them out on Twitter that probably helped <laughs> no one confirmed this for me but I remember making a post on Twitter and I remember someone commenting I'm gonna contact this person and then the next day all of a sudden they're like oh things are moving again and we're gonna try and fight this more because we had given up like literally two days before that yeah and they're like someone called someone and was like what the hell's going on yeah i'm like oh did i cause something (laughs) (laughs) oopsie (laughs) but yeah that was one of the biggest things that has happened since all this chronic illness stuff is just being denied access to my work this was a big project that could end up in my dissertation like I was responsible for stuff yeah I don't know it could have like set me back depending on where this project fell in my like priority list of research projects right and then just like I can't stay in lab like grad school is just like you work 24 7 yeah and I can't do that (laughs) I can't skip meals to run an experiment because then my body gets all shaky and everything gets thrown off yeah, grad school's a mess when you're chronically <laughs> I think that's the takeaway. Yeah, that's a very fair takeaway. You're right. The hours are ridiculous. And there's like a presumption that the work is your first priority over your own body, not just like you should care more about the work than your friends, which is also weird. But yeah, yeah, it's intense. Also, people don't really know how to talk to you, like asking how you are. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, are you doing better? I was like, define better. Yeah. And, like, I can't really complain because then they're going to, like, start feeling sorry for you. If you come with a new mobility aid, that's a whole thing. (laughs) Yes, it really is. You're like, this doesn't mean anything. You know, one of my friends who I've known a long time and who has definitely had some, like, adjustment learning curves around, like, chronic illness and stuff. Because it is hard to wrap your... Like, nobody knows anything about it until they get exposed to it because of other, like, representation problems, blah, blah, blah. But one of my friends was like, I've realized that you just don't want to have to explain it to people. Like, I want people to understand, not that I don't want them to care, but, like, those kinds of questions of, like, oh, something's different. Tell me about the difference today. Like, there's so much small talk that's oriented around if you're, like, better or worse than last time you saw someone. And that's not good small talk for us. It just sucks. Sometimes I just want to complain, like, I think my latest Twitter post was like, <laughs> oh, my rib is out and I have to wear a wrist splint today. Yeah. And people were like, oh, that sucks. Yeah. That's so much better. <laughs> you just want a calibrated response. It's not like panicking about things that you're like, I can't panic about this anymore. I don't have the energy for it. Right. Take, like, take your panic energy elsewhere. I'm just like, oh, yeah, my ribs do weird things. No need to worry. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, it's annoying, but it's not like an emergency. Or this one thing isn't. Yeah, I think this has also trained my partner to like, he like looks at my face before he freaks out because he's like, okay, you seem okay and calm about it. So I'm not worried. Yeah. And like, usually that's a good one. I know my own like capacity to interpret whether or not something's an emergency is also not very good just because I'm like, oh, I've lived through a lot of things that might have been emergencies and I didn't know it. So maybe everything is. But you're right. People should definitely trust us in our own level of worry. I specifically run into that. My husband will be like, wait, describe it again. I would be worried if I was having that experience. I'm concerned that you're not. And it's like... There's a medium in here between catastrophizing and medical trauma, I guess. Right. 
yeah he's like are you sure you're okay and i'm like i promise i'm fine it will eventually go back into place at some point i don't know yeah i need you to trust me that this one we just have to wait out <laughs> yeah plus i also like so many bad experiences at the er this is a universal issue with chronic illness <laughs> have you been since you knew or some before so i think right before the initial fibro diagnosis I had like this huge flare. It was a lot of nerve pain, like chills and dysautonomia and the whole ordeal and yeah. like difficulty breathing, I think. I don't remember. I went to the ER and they basically like gave me a chest x-ray and like made me go. <laughs> They're like, I don't know what to do with you. It's probably fine. Yeah. We're not even going to bother with your nerve pain. We think you're anxious. One of the doctors who did the intake was like, oh, you seem really anxious. And I'm like, yeah, because my arm really hurts from nerve pain and I can't really breathe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're like, that's not, that's a normal reaction to this situation. Right. And then I think they probably gave me a chest x-ray to like say they did something. Yeah. And then that was it. Like and then the second time was I was weaning off some medication and I guess I weaned off too quickly, but it also came with a whole bunch of triggering other symptoms. And yeah. so... I went to the ER and I'm like, I think this is what it is, but also I'm having all these other things. Here's my medical history. Like it was, I was all prepared. It was great. Yeah. But my, I think it was a physician's assistant. He, he didn't appreciate my preparation. Right. He saw some old test results because it was in the same medical group. And he's like, oh, your, your blood tests look perfectly normal. How do you know you have this EDS thing? <laughs> and I'm like, I went to a doctor and I showed the nurse who brought me in all of my medical forms printed out from this doctor. <laughs> like, yeah. excuse me? Yeah. And then he was also like, you're listing too many things that are wrong with you. What are you actually concerned about? And I'm like, all of them? Yeah. Like, they feel related because they ebb and flow together. Like, it's not possible <laughs> to, it's never that just one of them needs to be fixed. It's that this whole weird pattern is not great yeah right like it's a systemic illness <laughs> so if one thing is wrong everything else is wrong yeah and i don't know which one i should be more concerned about hence i'm in the er <laughs> yeah we need like an entire other pathway to care for that kind of thing where it's like i mean it's not an emergency in the sense that like i don't know that i have an acute wound that requires attention but like it feels very urgent because I didn't used to feel this way all the time and I suddenly do and I thought the doctors were supposed to care about that but they often don't also don't have like time frankly I know this is right. not just an individual doctor issue the system is literally not designed for patients like us and we're the ones who feel the brunt of that but oof yeah yeah this is why i don't go to er so i don't have to i don't go to urgent care if i don't have to like yeah the more i can stay away from any type of like medical place mm -hmm. is fantastic yeah and especially now when it's like yeah well especially now i'm like i'm not going anywhere near them <laughs> yeah and then how how has that been to be visiting so many medical facilities this year when obviously infection risk was a big concern for everybody and like it is kind of difficult to evaluate risk factor for this EDS dysautonomia MCAS trio because people don't usually include it on risk lists. Right. Yeah. So obviously, I don't know if I'm high risk. I right. know that it's probably not a great idea to get COVID because something's going to go wrong. Yeah. yeah. And I could possibly trigger something else to happen. Yeah. Who knows? I have been going to in person doctor's visits but they're pretty sparingly, they're like once every few months. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that's too high of a risk. Sometimes when it was like peak COVID numbers, yeah. I would kind of like push them back a few weeks. Yeah. But aside from that, like it's probably the same risk as getting takeout for me. Yeah, definitely. And yeah. for procedures and stuff, did you find, I guess that was in the summer, so hospitals were so in pretty good shape? Yeah, so that was July and October. So before, obviously before Thanksgiving mm -hmm. mess. I don't right. know what else to call it, but yeah. a mess. Yeah, so it wasn't that bad. I don't think, I mean, I think there was reduced capacity. Mm -hmm. So like I had to wait a bit and they were understaffed. So like it took a little longer to get a bed and all of that, but yeah. it wasn't the worst. But it like felt 
safe. Yeah, it felt safe, but it just sucked because I couldn't have like my partner with me for any appointment. I really hate going into appointments by myself. Yeah. Because they don't listen to me as a woman, a woman of color. Yeah. Even if I pretend to be like a scientist grad student crystal, like they're like, oh, you, you're a hypochondriac because you, you know too much. <laughs> you're using too many fancy words. And the only reason people use fancy words is to lie about their health to doctors. Like Right. So I often like play, I don't know. <laughs> I'm trying to kind of think of a different word here. Yeah. I think like ignorant or like. Yeah. I undermine my like intelligence a bit. Yeah. To not seem too quote unquote smart because yeah. then they get weirded out by that yeah. but i also can't seem too i don't know like there's a balance <laughs> yeah and i think one thing that's so hard about that especially to me now having like done so many interviews or people talk about their kind of like approach to doctors i think it's so clear to so many of us that like yeah being kind of tailored to that person does make a big difference in how they respond to me and that's unfortunate but then there's also so much luck involved. Some doctors are just never going to help you because of whatever bias they have. And there's nothing that you can do to fix it. And it's like, okay, so I have a lot of control and also no control. Good, good. Yeah, it's really a crapshoot. Mm -hmm. And what biases do these doctors have? What are they applying to you? What do they think of you when you walk in the room? Yeah, I've had so many doctors. If I've come into an appointment with a cane they're like but you're so young yeah <laughs> like that doesn't mean I don't need a cane like <laughs> yeah I'd like my goal isn't to like not using a cane isn't a primary goal of mine yeah or they're, they they kind of like undermine it they're like well if you think you need it and I yeah. was like if I didn't think I need it I wouldn't have used it <laughs> yeah you're like I'm actually not interested in your opinion on this issue this isn't why I came here Cain's not about you. It's about my balance and or joints and or injury and or whatever. Like, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's like the normal crap about <laughs> dealing with people who just don't want to believe you. It's unreal how widespread it is. And like you were just talking about the intersecting biases that can really and they're, sometimes they're strange. It's like there's some things that you kind of know to expect bias like gender or race or class especially in medicine and then there's also this other thing of like well do you sound like you should be using medical terminology because i'll let it slide if you like s took a nursing class once and can explain that to me but like if i think you learn those words on the internet i'm not gonna listen no matter what else i know about you yeah it's so frustrating too as like a phd student because like that comes with an enormous privilege of like, once I get my degree, I can be like, I have this degree. So obviously I can research. Yeah. But like that intermediate stage where like you don't have a title. Yeah. And they're just confused as to why you know all these like scientific right. terminology or how can you read medical literature? And I'm like, because I happen to be trained in this stuff. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and even if you're not trained, like you develop these skills really quickly. Because you have to. Yeah, it's a necessity. Yeah. I mean, some doctors really are open to people bringing stuff in, which is awesome. And it's great when it happens. But it's like when you bump into a couple doctors who you can tell just don't believe you because they've decided, like, first thing that you have nefarious intentions, like, it's a really distinct feeling and it's obvious. Right. Ugh. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Well, since we're caught up to the present, I know we've covered a lot of the main topics that I wanted to get to. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about that we haven't gotten to today? It's okay if the answer is no. I'm not sure. Oh, I wanted to complain really quick. That yeah. I, I think it's frustrating that emotions are so related to your symptoms. Yeah. I can't get upset without everything else falling apart. Or even like talking to you now, just because it's a very heightened yeah. emotional state. I'm like shaking a bit, yeah. which it always confuses me. Like I get hot and I'm shaky and I'm just like, why body are you doing this? It's very frustrating. <laughs> yeah. Something that happens for me now, because I definitely get twitchier as I get more emotional too. Is it like also if someone's not used to it, this doesn't, hasn't happened much this year because I haven't really seen many people. But, you know, people who don't see me all the time. If it's like, oh, we're having an impassioned conversation and now it looks like I'm just magically falling apart. And so people like get distracted and sometimes stop listening. And it's like, 
if I had been twitching the whole time, I would be upset that you're being distracted by it all of a sudden and not listening to me. But like, I understand why it would be concerning for someone's like physical state to change this much. It's just how it is, I guess. Yeah, like a few times when I'm having a serious conversation with someone, and I'm just like, I can't stop like twitching and the, the shaking and because it's just making this conversation so much harder. <laughs> because then you get like, so you're like, hyper aware of it also. Because you're like, I'm trying to focus on this conversation, but I can feel my body losing its mind, yeah. essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. It's just very frustrating. But I also learned that's a thing that happens to some people with chronic illnesses. And I was like, oh, it's not just me. That's yeah. great. I think it makes sense to me now in the context of like dysautonomia is your autonomic nervous system is disrupted. And it's like your nervous system is ob- when you're crying. That's like not... Crying isn't an intentional thing. I know that we can choose to cry, but like it's also a body reflex to intense emotional whatever. And so it makes sense that like there would be other crossed wires in between, but it's still like, especially after maybe a lifetime of having a lot of people imply that all of the pain was emotional, it's really difficult to be like, okay, well, it's not caused by it, but it is triggered by it. And those aren't the same. Right. Yeah. Speaking of dysautonomia, I actually didn't learn about it until I researched stuff Mm -hmm. and probably until Twitter. Yeah. Because like when I got diagnosed with fibro, they were just like, fibro is pain. And so you just feel a lot of pain. But they don't like talk about or my rheumatologist didn't talk about any of the nervous system stuff that could come with it yeah. and also with EDS. I was just like, why did, why is my nervous system acting up? Like this doesn't match with fibro. And yeah. then I learned about the word dysautonomia and how it can be related to like a billion different things. And I'm like, why did no doctors tell me about this? It's quite frustrating. Yeah. Dysautonomia and hypermobility. They're not, they could be caused by uh, many different things. They're not like 100% meaningful, but just like if you're diagnosing someone with something like fibromyalgia, which is a symptom cluster, you should be checking if they have all of these symptom clusters that usually come along with it. Everybody who gets diagnosed with fibro should be screened for hypermobility and dysautonomia. Not because everybody has it, but because everyone that has it deserves to get it identified. Like, Right. And then like when you don't know the name of something, it's so much scarier. Yeah. I'm like, I feel like I'm going to pass out and I get these hot flashes and oh my god, do I have like, I don't know, something scary, like a brain tumor or something. Yeah. Or like something that is like terminal. These are things that I like feared early on because I was like, I don't have words to describe what this is and I don't know if other people have it and what's the outlook. Yeah. Hence why Twitter is so amazing. (laughs) Yeah, no, Twitter is incredible for this. The internet in general, it's amazing to just think like, how many people have found better words and treatment options and probably diagnoses just from talking to other patients on the internet? Because all of a sudden our only point of reference isn't just like a person who's never felt what we're feeling. Right. Because like it was just me. Now I know disabled and chronically ill people both in my life and online. But like originally I didn't. I had no exposure to chronic illness or disability before anything. Yeah. And I was just like, my body is acting up. It's scary am I going to die? (laughs) Immediate thoughts. Yeah. And that's like a, how do I prioritize this? How do I talk about it? How do I get people to care that it's a problem without being too upset, but also being upset enough? It's weird how I feel like having to interact with other people around something that's so scary and life-altering can cause it to filter weird too. That's how it is for me. Yeah. I also feel like I've I just relate to non-disabled, non-chronically ill people a lot differently now. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just life experience at this point, but we're on like a different plane. Yeah, I guess I'm using hand move- movements, but no one can like <laughs> see what I'm doing. It's fine. Yeah, no, it's fine. It's easy. But it is. There's so many things about like just living in a body that you have to pay attention to in this way that if you've never paid attention to your body in this way, you just wouldn't have cause to be aware of, kind of. And I'm not saying that, like, chronically ill people and disabled people are the only people who know about their body. I'm just saying that, like, the way that we have to know about our bodies is really specific. And I sometimes feel like it it impacts everything. And so trying to interact with other people, you're like, oh, God, what do I, what am I, what can I say that I know they'll understand? What do I have to explain if I want to communicate these, like, really basic 
things that now feel really basic. Like there's a whole vocabulary barrier that I didn't know existed when I didn't know about it, I guess. Right. And it's like, who can I confide in about this? Who's not going to freak out if I say, I don't know, something subluxed today yeah. and it hurts. Yeah. Who's not going to give you that weird pity look? I hate the pity look. Yeah. <laughs> I rolled up in a wheelchair once for like an outing and the look of someone in the group was just like, ooh, I don't like you right now. <laughs> yeah. You're like, I need you to just work on this somewhere else. I can't handle your emotions and my emotions at the same time. Please leave. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Especially, I think mobility aids are one where people have mixed associations with them because they're associated understandably with like acute injury and if that's your only I know ableism is a big part of this and I'm not pretending that that's not a part of it but there's also this extra level where it's like if you've only ever used crutches or a cane or a chair when you were like having your own emergency I think in addition to all of the bullshit that people project about how terrible it must be to need a mobility aid which is like in the culture and everywhere, I think people are also like, oh, God, you must want to stop using that because when I was using it, I wanted to stop. And it's like, yeah, but when you were using it, you, like, broke your leg. I'm using it because my pelvis is unstable. Like, we're just not the same. It's fine. Right. I think people also project, like, if they have family members who have dealt with, I don't know, more, like, acute illnesses, but serious illnesses, Mm -hmm. And then they're like, oh, you must feel horrible about your life because now you're dealing with this thing. And I'm like, I'm not bad. Like, yeah. I, I'm fine for the most part. Like, I go to therapy, but, like, that's to deal with everything else that comes with chronic illness, like yeah. all the other stuff. But, like, yeah, I feel like I've had to balance a lot of people's emotions since, I don't know, everything started. And yeah. it's quite frustrating, especially when they're older than me. yeah. I think that that uh, that also sucks just being younger and chronically ill like adults that are older than you don't know how to relate or deal with that and they have like this their own existential crisis when they meet you because they're like but I'm old and healthy yeah but you're young and not I don't know how these two things match (laughs) yeah like I don't know what I owe you or like what tone I'm supposed to approach you with and it's like maybe just don't start by thinking about this just start by thinking about the things that we would talk about normally right like i'm just a human being please treat me as such i am not your therapist i'm also not like the cause of your existential crisis it's fine (laughs) yeah yeah like in that circumstance or with peers when it's like if this is the first time that you're realizing that somebody can become chronically ill i'm gonna need you to work through that on your own time and not with me thank you right yeah there was this oh i don't remember the name of the book but there was this book that like basically described this. I can look it up while I'm talking. <laughs> it basically describes this phenomenon of like when you're young and chronically ill that people just can't, their mind can't wrap around it. It's called Invisible by Michelle Hirsch. Invisible, how young women with serious health issues navigate work relationships and the pressure to seem just fine. All right. And I highly recommend it because like, I think maybe they have MCAS. They have MCAS and other like different chronic illnesses, and they're just talking about how basically what I just mentioned, this existential crisis that young people and older people have when they meet someone who is not quote unquote healthy yeah, and how they like suddenly realize their health is finite. It's not always going to be there and it may not be there for the expected amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. I need to read that book because I was in a weird space when I read it the first time, but mm-hmm. it was really helpful to like understand how I was interacting with people. Yeah. 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 To like know that it was a pattern that you weren't, it's like at the beginning, you're like, I'm not you, anybody, but it's like, I feel really hurt or frustrated or terrible by the way people are interacting with me. And because I've never been in this position before and I've never seen it represented in media, right. I don't even know how to describe the dynamic. And it makes such a difference to just be like, oh, this is a thing that happens. Other people experience this. This person probably behaves this way around other people, which is too bad, but also means it's not personal. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think society just doesn't know how to deal with, they know how to deal with acute illnesses, terminal illnesses, but the in-between is just a mystery and there's no representation and there's no manual as to how to like navigate the world as a chronically ill person. Yeah. Yeah. It's all missing. Yeah. We just need more information. (laughs) Yeah. 
I wonder, like, not to get too either optimistic or pessimistic about it, but I really do wonder how long COVID is going to change just representation for this community because we know that so many people who contract COVID just are going to end up with complications of a connective tissue slash mast cell disorder because so many people are undiagnosed until something like this happens. And, like, the visibility of synchronicity, I guess, even though it's happened before, but... It just feels like it might change some representation, something, but it might make it worse, I guess, is the other problem. Yeah, I don't, I don't know where I fall in long COVID yet. The way that my partner and I operate is like, not only do we not want to get other people sick if yeah. we get COVID, like we don't also want to become like, well, me more chronically ill and him chronically ill. Right. We're fine with our health levels right now. Yeah. But like, I don't know. I feel really bad. Like I keep seeing stories, which is basically mirroring all most chronically ill people's stories yeah. which is doctors don't believe you or doctors are like it's probably in your head you sh- you need an antidepressant like yeah. i don't know it's heartbreaking but I, d- I don't know if society is going to shift its views yet yeah i don't know that it will like transform other people i wonder if there's like a critical mass that will create some kind of self-representation or like that's what I'm really curious about I definitely think a lot more people are just getting the same gaslighting BS that yeah most of us have gotten on independent timelines for years unfortunately but they have the yeah, internet I, yeah I think I've definitely seen a few articles talking about the gaslighting which I think is a good step in the right direction yeah. like it sucks that it's happening but right. like now it's reaching more like mainstream media outlets yeah. And that's really great. Yeah. Speaking of on COVID, I also find it funny that when people think about getting COVID, they're like, I don't want to get sick. But like, they don't think about the long term effects that could happen. No. <laughs> and I'm like, it's not just you get sick and like, you know, the immediate like horrible stuff happens. You can get kind of sick and then things happen later. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of these things where it's like some stuff that I think seems really obvious to people in like chronic illness communities, disability communities, mostly about that are like, okay, well, this is a viral infection. And we know that post-viral illness is like a kind of poorly defined segment of the population is very vulnerable to lifelong disability from post-viral illness. So we know, and we've been thinking and talking about that this whole time. And it just like, doesn't, permeate the consciousness of people who think that it's either you're healthy or you're dead i guess right like even before long covid became a big conversation like just watching the me csf community speak about it and i was like oh this is a thing that i probably shouldn't like start thinking about and like told my partner we already like we're taking good care and like you know making sure we were social distancing but like it was like a, oh this is really like important to not get us sick but also not get others sick because they might have worse outcomes kind of thing yeah but like i feel like that doesn't resonate with a lot of people <laughs> yeah it's like it hasn't even landed there has been media on it we i know there has but it's like people yeah. think like that long covid huh has it i feel like to my mom i'll be like yeah a lot of people are experiencing this like high percentages and people will be like oh really i haven't heard about that and you're like how yeah i think a bad thing about how the medical system talks about some chronic illnesses is that they're like rare or like it's like a low probability because I know when I was first thinking about EDS I was like oh but EDS is rare and so like why would it happen to me and why are there so many people on the internet that have it like (laughs) yeah or like also fibro I'm like it's kind of common but like not common enough where I'm like why me kind of thing yeah (laughs) like how could this have happened to me yeah and i feel like there's that disconnect of like it's not small numbers right i don't really know how to put that into words (laughs) probabilities are difficult (laughs) yeah yeah and that like most people don't make risk assessments about their health every day so most people aren't constantly thinking about like is this going to make my long-term health better or worse like on a day-to-day basis, especially the worst part, I guess. And I think like, especially with connective tissue disorders where the day-to-day stuff for a lot of people is extremely manageable and it's the complications that could happen at any time and are extremely disruptive. And that's kind of the problem. Right. Yeah, I think it's helpful for us who need to make calculations every day of like, what can I not do 
to make sure that I like keep my baseline. Mm -hmm. Cause like, there's always that fear of like, if you flare up that your baseline's going to shift again. Yeah. And that's a horrible feeling. So I don't want to do that. So yeah. I'm just going to be really, really careful and like do all these calculations of like, okay, which mobilities do, aids do I need? How long can I stay upright? How long can I stay in the sun? Where's the nearest AC building? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think like when you're used to thinking about the world that way, it's like, oh God, now the world's put another new limitation of like, stay more than six feet away from everybody, wear a mask if you ever leave the house, just don't leave the house if you can help it. And we're like, so many of us have just been like, yeah, this makes sense. It makes as much sense as anything else I've ever had to completely turn my life upside down for. But other like people who haven't had to turn their life upside down, maybe many times to prevent the worst case scenario are like, I'll just risk the worst case scenario. And we're like, don't do that. Stop risking it. Right. It's not, it's not worth it at all. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Well, 2020, it's almost over. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully things come and vaccines are tested on people that represent us please with mass cell disorders so that we know who can take the risk and who needs other people to take the risk for them yeah right well and we'll see where that's at when this episode comes out but yes here's hoping for a safer outside world soon this year has been so freaking hard it has yeah I think also another thing that's been so interesting doing these interviews, because I have one more after this, but so I've done like 10. And so many of us are like, yes, this everything that's happening has impacted me. And I'm so worried about our communities and like all of those things. Nobody is not sensitive to that. And also most of us have still had our own standard personal health dramas that are like pretty all consuming a lot of the time. Yeah, I keep telling myself, don't do anything that will put you in the ER. Or, or the urgent care. Yeah, that's your job. And your body, your job is to be like baseline normal. <laughs> yeah, protect as much as possible, as much as that's ever in any of our control. Right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and the energy to talk to me today. I know that it is not free. Yeah, it's great. I actually really enjoy talking about chronic illness stuff to people because it's something that I don't get to do very often in like real life. Yeah. So, yeah, this was great. I really loved it. Yay. Thank you. Thank you for listening to episode 76 of No End in Sight. You can find Crystal on Twitter and Instagram at caffeinatedchris. That's spelled caffeinated, K-R-Y-S. You can find me on Twitter at fibrofuckboy. And if you want to support me directly and are in a position to... I have a Patreon where I post my poetry and other artistic endeavors at patreon.com slash darkmagenta. You can find Brienne on Twitter and Instagram at BenSB, and you can find many more conversations about chronic illness on Twitter at RTs from the Void. And don't forget, you can sign up to support our show over at patreon.com slash noendinsight. Or if you want to support the show but don't have a few bucks to spare, We'd be just as grateful if you left a podcast review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening.